Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you work anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. Our topic today is the Christian Doctrine. This episode is brought to you by BidProtestInsurance.com. Bid Protest Insurance is exactly what it sounds like. Insurance to protect your award from bid protests. Bid protests are nearly impossible to predict. Since bid protests typically cost the apparent winner up to 15% of the contract value, they can be a nearly catastrophic financial event, especially for small businesses. Having insurance against this mitigates that risk. Here's how bid protest insurance works. Go to bidprotestinsurance.com to apply for a free, no-obligation quote. To secure that quote, you simply pay a small fee. If and only if you receive the award, you'll be charged for the agreed-upon premium. There's no cost if you don't win the award. Now, if someone protests your award, you're covered for many of the costs that are created by protest delays. To cover yourself in the event that someone protests your next win, go to bidprotestinsurance.com to get started. And speaking of getting started, here we go with the Christian Doctrine. can't believe we've done a couple hundred episodes of the podcast and not covered the Christian doctrine. Yeah, I'm continually surprised how many topics on the list that I keep, which is 284 topics on it, how many of those that we not cover that are things that you just deal with every day, like, or could deal with every day. Down to 284 now, huh? We're cutting through it. it <laughs> Unfortunately, it keeps building in the background. Yeah, it's... It, it does. The first time I heard about the Christian doctrine, it was at a, that month-long training class you take when you first start with the, as a government contracts guy, particularly with the Air Force and the military. It's kind of a foundational concept of contract management, and, and or at least of government contract management. There's a big difference there. Simply put, the Christian doctrine says that just because the clause isn't in your contract, it may still apply. Yeah, that's... Uh... Little counterintuitive there. So I have a contract with the government. It has pages and pages and pages of clauses, and there still could be more clauses that apply that I can't read right now. <laughs> They're an in invisible ink, and that ink is revealed by the Christian doctrine. <laughs> All right, before we get into that, let's stop and say thanks. I want to say thanks this week to Emily Harmon. Emily is the director of the Office of Small Business Programs for the Department of the Navy in Washington, D.C., I want to thank Emily, or, or no, maybe I should say Miss Harmon, for, for liking and sharing the Contracting Officer podcast content on LinkedIn, because the best way for people to find the information is for people like Emily to share it. Thanks, Emily. Miss Harmon. <laughs> All right, let's get into the Christian doctrine. To my surprise, as a young contract specialist, it was purely coincidental that it's called the Christian doctrine. It's actually named after the company that brought the suit not based on the Christian religion. I thought it was based on the Christian religion because, you know, it's like it's do the right thing, the golden rule, based on what's supposed to be in your contract. But it's actually a court case. When you say it's named after the firm that brought the suit, this was a court case from 1963, way back then. Long time ago. Called GL Christian and Associates versus the United States. And it's become known as the Christian Doctrine. The case held that standard clauses established by regulations may be considered as being in every contract. The concept is based on the FAR, the Federal Acquisition Regulation, is based on law. 
Therefore, the mandatory clauses that are supposed to be in the contract should be there. The official language is that things that express a significant or deeply ingrained strand of public procurement policy, I'm not making up that phrase, will be considered to be in the contract by operation of law, even if they're not actually in the contract. Let's pause with a legal disclaimer. <laughs> this is one of those episodes it's a good idea where we're talking about some serious legal stuff. I'm not a lawyer. Kevin, you're not nope. a lawyer. If you're listening to this podcast and have questions or, or plan to rely on the Christian doctrine, consult with professional legal counsel before diving into this. Okay, disclaimer over, back to our opinions. <laughs> the backstory on the Christian doctrine is that the Christian and Associates had a contract with the Army Corps of Engineers way back when to build 2,000 housing units at an Army base. However, the Army deactivated the base in 1958, and of course, they terminated the contract. It was a $32 million contract before it had expired. So the contractor responds to the cancellation by submitting, of course, a claim for costs incurred, settlement expenses, you know, and, and lost profits. That's part of the determination process. The Army then attempted to settle the claim under the standard termination for convenience, or the, the T4C clause. We have an episode about that. It's episode 121. Among other things, to simplify, the, the T4C, the termination for convenience clause, gives the contractor profit for work it already had performed, but not for anticipated profits. Anticipated so profits on the, on the work that, that hasn't been completed yet, but was part of the contract, that the, the part of the work that's terminated. Correct. So let's say out of, out of $32 million, they did $5 million worth of work and made, I don't know, half a million dollar profit. Well, the profit on that other work they didn't do yet. That's the sticking point. So the contractor argues that because the Army had failed to include the T4C clause in the contract, when the Army canceled the project, it was a breach of contract, and therefore the contractor was entitled to common law damages for breach of contract, which includes anticipated profits. There's a sticking point. This is millions of dollars worth of profit we're probably talking about here. So in short, and this is why it's called the Christian doctrine, the court said that the T4C clause should have been in the contract by law. So the parties then operate as if it was. Boom. <laughs> the contractor says, you cancel my contract. I want the profit that I would have gotten had you not canceled it. They read their contract and said, well, it doesn't say termination for convenience means no profit on, on terminated work. So I'm entitled to it. My contract says that. I'm reading my contract, and this is what it says. And then they go to court, and the court says, well... That really should have been in there, so uh, you don't get it. Turns out reading your contract isn't quite enough. <laughs> this actually goes both ways. It applies to both government and contractors. Two years after the Christian decision, the U.S. Court of Claims held that the Christian doctrine could be applied for the benefit of contractors, too. And this was a case where the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission had a contract that had a clause providing that an appeal an appeal should be taken within 30 days. However, the regulation allowed for 60 days for an appeal. So apparently the contractor appealed after 30 days but before 60 days, and the court ruled that the appeal was timely, even though the contract said must be filed within 30 days. So the regulation behind the scenes said there's 60 days. The contract can't contradict that. So once again, we have someone reading the contract, this time the government reading the contract, saying it says 30 days. You're not within 30 days, so you can't do this. And the court said, 
well, I know your contract says that, but that's not really what happens here. So, so I think the cl- the classic Paul is, well, <laughs> like you're about to get screwed. Sorry. <laughs> so fast forward 30 some years. In 1993, a U.S. District Court of Appeals modified the Christian doctrine again, and they held that it only applies to mandatory contract clauses, again, which express a significantly or deeply ingrained strand of public procurement policy. Oh, that's just an awful phrasing, but it's actually in there. So they really clarified it. They shrunk it down. This isn't every possible clause ever that a contracting officer can go back later and say, well, I meant to have that in there. (laughs) This doesn't apply to discretionary clauses. This applies to contract clauses that are mandatory by law. If the clause is supposed to be in there, whether or not the contracting officer got the clause in the contract, it applies. If the clause may be in there or may not be in there, depending on circumstances, and the contracting officer didn't put it in the contract, well, then it doesn't count. It's not in the contract. That, may, that makes sense to me. So if you're a contracting officer, and a clause that you really wanted in the contract doesn't make it in there. If it's not a mandatory clause, you can't just say, well, the Christian doctrine says this applies, so problem solved. Yeah, it's not a cleanup tool. <laughs> Let's link this to the time zones, to the acquisition and execution time zones. You're most likely thinking about this, clauses, when you're in the market research zone, when the draft RFP is written and released. And it may trickle into the RFP zone when contractors are asking questions about, should this clause be in there? Why is this clause in there? That kind of thing. Then in the execution time zones, in the honeymoon zone, when you're realizing, okay, what, what's really in the contract? Do these terms actually do exactly what we thought they would do, et cetera? And then it's possible to come up during the performance zone when you're doing the work, when you're applying, you're, you're applying all these terms and conditions. That's when you start to notice, oh, that, that clause that had a 1% chance of applying actually applies and it's not in the contract right until something happens no one reads the nitty-gritty of the contract or or generally those clauses that's just part of the contract that no one really looks at and then something happens wait is that in there let's look yeah for for example all of a sudden there's an unprecedented 30-day government shutdown that you have to apply these clauses to right it also may apply in the wrap-up zone when you're trying to close out the contract and you see that certain clauses apply at that zone, and they may or may not be in there for a variety of reasons. Why is this important? It's pretty unique to government contracting. This is not in the contract, but it still applies to you. It's a bizarre concept. In the non-government world, you can't write a contract for something illegal. It invalidates the contract if, if the contract is for something illegal. This goes beyond that. And saying that things that are legal that aren't referenced here apply. I don't know that that works the same way unless you're working with the government. Most contracts are actually built by contract writing systems, some kind of electronic system that helps to pick out the clauses and structure the contract. So the risk of missing clauses, it's pretty low. Back in the olden days, contracts were a manual structure. There's actually a matrix in the far way in the back, if you still have a paper copy of it, that tells you which clauses apply when. And back in the day, contracting officers, contract specialists had to go through that entire matrix and answer the question to themselves for every clause. Does this apply? Does this apply? Does this apply? If it's a cost type contract, this applies. If it's not a cost type contract, this doesn't apply. And then they had to insert those clauses into the contract. 
Thankfully, that's mostly automated now. However, those questions still apply. The questions you just talked about, them answering in the clause matrix. Well, now they're electronic questions. So you have to answer the questions correctly with context in order for the right clauses to get spit out by the system. And from experience, if you don't do that right, you get some of the wrong clauses if you don't check the right boxes. So the, the risk is reduced from what it was in the, in the old days, which, by the way, was like 10 years ago. Let's not kidding. <laughs> it, it might be current in some agencies, but you can't eliminate the risk entirely because you, you know, garbage in, garbage out. You got to make sure you're checking those boxes properly and whatever clauses it spits out have to be the right ones. Someone probably still needs to review whether or not the right boxes were checked and the right clauses ended up in the contract. You can't just say, the tool created the contract, I'm done. We've sort of been talking about the government side, why the government cares about this. Let me focus on other reasons why the government cares. Besides the fact that you have to select the right check boxes in order to get the right clauses and, and you have to review, it's possible that even if you do that, the contract writing system is not up to date. This stuff's being updated all the time. Back when I worked on Conrite, which was you know, one of the Air Force's uh, con contract writing systems, we had a Mrs. Clause update, which is funny to say it that way, but it was an electronic update you had to you know, manually click on in your computer for the clauses to update. Again, this isn't 100 years ago. This is like in the early 2000s, okay? <laughs> Let's not kid ourselves. And so those clauses have to be updated. And if that system is out of whack or it's a little bit behind or you didn't hit the button or something and there's some change to the clause, then you end up with a, a clause being missing. The point is you can't rely on the system to have every base covered. If a clause is not included or, or the correct version of the clause is not included in the contract, you can't say the system didn't include it. That, that's, <laughs> not a, that's not a legal defense. But the Christian doctrine might be <laughs> a legal defense. You're, you're right. And I think the risk of that has gone way down, even though you're not talking about ancient history with having to manually update your clauses. Even if all that is pushed automatically now, there's still some kind of delay between when a rule is made and when systems are updated to incorporate that rule. And there's a possibility that you could issue a contract right in that little gap and still have something missing. This gets more complicated when you consider that you have agency regulations on top of the FAR. So you've got the defense FAR supplement, you got maybe have the your department FAR supplement, and then you have these things called mandatory procedures. And I don't know if there's any case law on does the Christian doctrine apply to mandatory procedures? Because it doesn't actually talk about those. So that's a rabbit hole. But the point is, you know, don't rely on the Christian doctrine to clean up your contract. I gotta say, I was offended. Is that the right word? Horrified. <laughs> a little bit of both. Early in my career, when more than once a contract specialist or worse, a, a contracting officer defended a lack of diligence by saying something to the effect of, oh, whatever, the Christian doctrine will cover us anyway. So they didn't actually review all the clauses or didn't care to make sure everything was right because they just thought, ah, oh, we can fall back on the Christian doctrine. If it's supposed to be in there, it's in there. And that only applies to mandatory clauses. And the customer is often worried about the ones that aren't mandatory, the ones that are optional but have a deep impact on whether right. or not a contract is effective. It'd be nice to be able to say, I don't have to do my job because the law says that, that contracts are automatic. But if that was true, then no government contracting people would get paid for doing the job because it, it would just be up to the law. And, and there'd be robots. <laughs> Man, it's, this wouldn't be a thinking job. So you know, let's not push this too far one way or the other.
Let's flip to the industry side. Why does industry care? We've touched on a couple of the horror stories that are possible. You read your contract, you assume that your contract is your contract, then something happens and you find out, oh no, there's actually another set of rules that aren't on the paper, that aren't on your computer screen, that apply to you. Yeah, for the most part, this is low risk until it's not. (laughs) If you were GL Christian and company in the original case, and you thought that you were going to have a very profitable year because of this work, then the work gets terminated and the profit goes away too. Even though you had read your contract and used that to forecast what the worst case was, you're not going to be happy. And this could be brutal, particularly for a small business, but even for a small division of a large business that has their own profit and loss statement, their own P&L, they're managing their own profitability. And again, the profit example is one, but there's a lot of other pieces to this that could very deeply affect how effective the contract and how financially viable the contract is for the contractor. As an example of how fast these clauses change, you and I did an episode on the limitation of subcontracting clause, and then not four weeks after (laughs) we did our episode, they updated the clause. It fundamentally changed it. Well, guess what? If your contract didn't have that new one, but it applied by that date, and your contract writing system wasn't updated, the new one applied. So th- there, there could be a case right now where that Christian doctrine is applying to that clause because it was a pretty fundamental change. So just like us having to issue a new updated episode for limitation of subcontracting clause yeah, a, month a month later, later you could do a contract modification a month later to incorporate clauses that were supposed to be in there the first time but weren't because of a system delay. This is why Skyway customers use our team of former contracting officers to review their RFPs and contracts. Because buried in that long list of clauses in Section I, there's a bunch of nuggets. But on top of that, there are some key clauses that have implications that may or may not be included. you got to know what you're looking for. Commercial companies generally rely on lawyers, either inside or outside counsel, for contract content and review. This is special legal stuff that requires a lawyer to look at. If you enter the government market, you may find that the skill set needed for contract review changes. A contract specialist or a contracts manager is often one of the early hires for a small business in the government market or a company that's entered the government market. And it's pretty much mandatory for large companies. Large companies generally have teams of contracts managers or specialists. It's not generally true in the commercial world. What I'm trying to say is the government market is unique in that there is a contracts manager job that is generally done by lawyers in the commercial world. Okay, Kevin, that's a good place to wrap this one up. On the government side, don't hang your hat on the contract writing system. It's garbage in, garbage out if you don't do a problem. (laughs) And, And also don't hang your hat on the Christian doctrine to clean it up afterwards. Know the regulations as best you can, realizing that it's never going to be perfect. Watch out for those obscure clauses and requirements because that's – again, that's that's the skill set that comes with being a, co- a government contracts guru. That's why you haven't been replaced by robots. And, and, and never will be. But honestly, <laughs> right. On the industry side, what's in your contract becomes what's supposed to be in your contract. <laughs> Small changes in the regulations, particularly if you don't know about them, can have huge impact to your contract. This is why Skyway started our This Week in Government Contracting. It's an email we send our customers each week so they can stay ahead of key changes in the regulations. 
instead of having to rely on things like the Christian doctrine, which creates a long and expensive legal process, it's much better to be in prevention mode than repair mode. And the Christian doctrine is like the ultimate, you know, it's a repair tool, but it's like a hammer. Repair mode is definitely the the long and expensive way to go about it rather than just avoiding it in the first place. It's not like the Christian doctrine is is the undo button or 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 a, a redo button for for the process. Hey, we we didn't do all of this stuff that was supposed to be done before, so now we're going to rely on this in the end to save our butts. Government folks should not rely on the Christian doctrine. Contractors should not rely on the Christian doctrine. We should rely on our contract to govern our relationship. And with that, I'll talk to you later, Kevin. See you, Paul. Okay, that's it for this episode. Thanks to our sponsor, BidProtestInsurance.com. And thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week. (laughs) I'm too busy cracking myself up this morning. It's hot in this room. All right.